Hi, it's Dr. Squee here. I'm here to tell you about my live video podcast event, Squeefest 2020, brought to you by StreamYard. 2pm to 2pm British Summertime, or 9am to 9am Eastern, I will be going live for 24 hours on the Dr. Squee Show Facebook page and twitch.tv slash Dr. Squee to raise money for NHS charities together who are supporting NHS staff and volunteers who are bringing the fight to COVID-19. We will have guest stars including the third Doctor Doctor Who companion Katie Manning. From going live we have Trevor Simon. Stand-up comedian Anubhav Powell will be bringing Mumbai to the event and we'll have so many more guest stars to announce. As well as that we have quizzes, games, panels with authors and ghost hunters. We've also got your favourite podcasts, Retrek, Netheads, Legend in My Spare Time, Due South by Southeast, Unclassical, Dead Piet Society, Talking Codswallop, Diversely Geek, Legend of the Travelling Tardis, Dog's Best Friend and Blay Makes Food. As well as all that, our friends over at SW20 Radio, The Sound of South Wales, will be broadcasting an hour of Squeefest with our friend Matt Lees. Please follow our Facebook page and at Dr. Squee on Twitter and Instagram for more guest announcements as we have them. All this and so much more. If you can afford to donate, please go to justgiving.com slash squeefest now or on the day and give what you can. And join me for 24 hours of fun. I'll see you there. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squee show. I'm Dr. Squee and this is my show. I... I'm really thrilled with the guest we've got this week is Captain Paul Watson, the founder of Sea Shepherd and the co-founder of Greenpeace and Greenpeace International. Man, did I have a wonderful time talking to him. I I was really astounded by his mix of single-mindedness towards the cause and his pragmatism at when things change, his ability to change with them at a moment's notice when he he discovers new information he changes his tack he he works smarter towards his goal of uh, conserving marine life and just his his lack of personal concern uh, and putting the cause first i recently saw on sea shepherd's facebook page they were saying that you know if if you like like captain uh, paul watson says if you don't have the ability to put uh, marine life before your own, please do not apply to to be one of our uh, our people working on the front lines. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing that, but uh, I just I don't know if I would have the the bravery to do that, if I'm honest. And and I think it's wonderful they're out there doing that. They're doing what's right for our, our sea life, and it's really inspiring to me. Uh, when when I sat down for this interview. I had extensive notes, all of which gave a little timeline of Captain Watson uh, from where he kind of started to founding Sea Shepherd and a few general questions. And I very soon, as you will hear, like me changing tack during the interview, I realized that uh, he wasn't the kind of guy for that. Like, because he, he was revealing all this stuff about things that he'd done. But uh, to have a timeline like that seemed not right for the conversation we had he just uh it just seemed like i had to be more in the moment yeah that's what that interview demanded of me and it's something interesting which i'm learning doing this show is is what approach can work for one guest will not work for another i kind of knew that already but it kind of really brought it home in this one that i just had to throw out the window and just be in the moment and listen and respond which i'm always doing as part of an interview but sometimes 
a guest responds more to a kind of like a, a timeline of them sometimes you have to go another way and we, we discussed some really interesting issues i found our conversation as part of this about uh, the 2020 elections in america were really interesting i i don't think i agree with everything that captain watson said but obviously when it comes to conservation he knows uh what's what and he knows which candidate is representing what in that you know i i still have differing views on kind of maybe the difference between uh president trump and joe biden but certainly on these issues it was interesting to hear you know and to bring it home that uh, maybe neither of them are really great on conservation issues so uh, again just this this is something different we've not done a, a, a an episode so far with someone who's so connected to an issue and you know the the it's more like like sea shepherd in a way was kind of the uh the subject of the interview as well as uh captain watson and i just like to thank him for sparing time for this show uh so i'm not going to say too much more but please enjoy this week's show Welcome to the show with your friend and mine. So tell me, Dr. Squee, who's it gonna be this time? We like to hear you talk and we love to hear you listen. And if you are not subscribed, you won't know what you're missing. So welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Have a thumbs up. Here we go. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Tonight, Squee welcomes... Captain Paul Watson. And now here's the man himself, Dr. Squee. Hello, good evening, and welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. I'm Dr. Squee. This is my show. Now, in the brief history of the Dr. Squee Show, we've had some people on who I've referred to as like heroes, but they've been heroes of mine. So we've had uh, a member of the Bare Naked Ladies, one of my favorite bands. We've had uh, Olympic gold medal winners. We've had Oscar winners. Uh, we've had uh, someone who I grew up watching with my dad, like just personal heroes and people who've made achievements in their own fields. Tonight, we've got someone who genuinely is uh, helping protect and helping to look after this world of ours and helping to change it for the better. Someone who kind of, I think, truly earns that title of hero. Uh, but to give him his propers, he is a Canadian marine conservationist, advocate for animal rights, writer and author. He co-founded Greenpeace and Greenpeace International and founded the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, protecting seals, dolphins, whales, sharks, sea turtles and other marine animals. He has risked life and limb and incarceration in the aid of protecting sea life and still does so without harming his fellow humans. Please welcome to the Dr. Squeeze show, Captain Paul Watson. How are you doing tonight, Captain Watson? Pretty good, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. So um, quite a, a busy and illustrious career you've had. I guess so. it's been a long time. Yeah. So uh, I want to take you back to the beginning. So uh, you started life in Toronto on the 2nd of December, 1950, you were born. It was in a lobster fishing town of St. Andrews by the sea at the, um, so like being, being born there, was that kind of where you first bonded with kind of uh, marine life? 
Well, yeah, it was, it was a Eastern Canadian fishing village that I was raised in. Um, so, yeah, I was very close to, you know, whales and seals and birds and, and that. But I think my activism actually began with beavers because I spent a summer when I was 10 swimming with a family of beavers. And uh, the next year I couldn't find them, found out that during the winter trappers had uh, taken them all. So that made me pretty angry. So that winter I walked the trap lines and freed animals and destroyed the traps. So been doing it pretty much the same thing ever since. And at the age of, like you said, 10 there, I, I read on the website 9, I think you're selling yourself short here. You're being modest. No, I started when I was uh, 11, actually, as an actor. Oh, 11, sorry, pardon me. So, uh, you know, what, what did your parents make of kind of you getting involved with that at such a young age? Well, I got in trouble a lot, uh, disrupting deer hunts, uh, you know, uh, goose hunting, things like that. Uh, I guess um, <laughs> I shot a boy in the ass with a BB gun when he, I was 12 because he was about to kill a bird. Remember, one politician said, well, proof of Watson's insanity is that he shot a boy who was about to shoot a bird. And I said, well, you know, in my town, every kid shot every other kid with a BB gun. I just happened to have a practical reason to shoot the kid I did. <laughs> Excellent. And you got the uh, traps banned, I believe, on that occasion. D I, what's that? Sorry. And I believe, like, even with that early work, you got the, the traps banned. No, I didn't get them banned, but I, oh, I certainly you know, shut down a lot of them. I was a member of a group called the, the Kindness Club at the time. Albert Schweitzer was actually the president of it. And uh, the founder of the Kindness Club, uh, she later described me as a hitman for the Kindness Club. Excellent. It's, a, it's funny how they kind of like use these terms of like hitman and stuff for, for like a kindness club, for protecting animals. Well, what I developed over the years um, is a thing which I call aggressive nonviolence. And uh, in the last 42 years since I set up Sea Shepherd, we've never caused a single injury to a single person, and we haven't sustained any injuries either. So, uh, but we shut down literally hundreds of illegal activities. So I believe that you can be aggressive and at the same time uh, be respectful of life. Yeah, and uh, you, you describe yourself so at 11 as an activist. So is, is that something which was kind of consuming at that age, or is it something kind of developed over the years? Well, I didn't really give it a lot of thought at the time. I was just doing what I felt uh, impassioned to be doing. Uh, but in 1969, I attended a demonstration on the U.S.-Canadian border. Uh, it was organized by the Sierra Club and the Quakers, and it was opposed to nuclear testing in Amchik Island in the Aleutians in Alaska. Now, th these two groups came together for different reasons. The Quakers were for peace, and the uh, Sierra Club was for the environment. But, but I was actually different. I, I, my concern was that uh, Amchika was a wildlife preserve, and you couldn't go on the island with a gun, uh, but uh, here they are blowing a five megaton bomb under it, and it killed like thousands of seals and, and sea otters. And so that's why I got involved in, in, initially. So we came up with this idea to uh, go up and protest the bomb. And the Quakers had taken a boat down to Bikini Atoll in 1956 uh, to protest there. <clears throat> and there was an earthquake uh, in 64 in Alaska, which had caused a tidal wave to sit, hit Vancouver Island and Hawaii. So that's why we called the group the Don't Make a Wave Committee, because we wanted to put that image of the tidal wave in people's minds when they were talking about the bomb. And uh, so uh, at one of the early meetings, uh, somebody left the uh, meeting and flashed a peace sign. And Bill Darnell, uh, he, 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 well, they said peace, and he said, well, make it a green piece. And Bob Hunter said, hey, that's a great name for the boat, so we'll call it the, the boat the green piece. And then in 72, um, we changed the name of uh, – Green, of the Don't Make a Wave Committee to the Greenpeace Foundation. Yeah, and, and that first uh, mission with Greenpeace One, I believe, was the first ship. And uh, while you were sailing out uh, in the cause of protection, 
they delayed the test to try and kind of foil you stopping it and well, try to reschedule it. First, they sent the, the Phyllis Cormac but as a Greenpeace boat. Uh, I wasn't on on that crew. Uh, there was only 13 of them. And I was, I was actually the youngest member of Greenpeace, so I got sidelined for that first trip. But they, they delayed the test while the uh, Greenpeace was up there. And uh, so the Greenpeace uh, boat returned. But in the meantime, we had organized to get in a better boat, a former Canadian minesweeper, and we took a crew of 30. And I was uh, an officer on that boat because I previously had experience with the Norwegian Swedish Merchant Marine and the Canadian Coast Guard. And uh, so uh, we sailed up there. And then instead of delaying it this time, they blew it up two days ahead of time. So before yeah. we got there. So but the end result is the incredible publicity that was generated from both of those voyages uh, led to the cancellation of further tests. So that was the end of t- testing in the in the uh, in the Aleutian Islands. Is it sometimes difficult where you are literally traveling the world uh, to protect uh, places and they'll step up or they'll delay things just to try and stop you from stopping them? Uh, How difficult is it to coordinate that? Well, in that case, uh, you know, that's not usually the case. So they don't really delay or whatever. Uh, I want one interesting thing is 2011 that we went up to uh, with Animal Planet to uh, cover the uh, killing of the pilot whales in the in the Faroe Islands. And the Faroese had this brilliant idea that uh, they were going to jeopardize us or or sabotage our campaign by not killing any whales that summer because they thought that that would deny Animal Planet the the program because, you know, they thought that we wanted the whales to get killed on camera. So at the end of the season, which was great because it was the only year that whales were not killed in the Faroe Islands. And so their, their, their ploy backfired because I said at the end, I said, well, we achieved what we wanted to achieve. We don't care if it was on film. We've got plenty of archival footage or whatever. So we're not here to watch you butcher whales. We're here to stop you from butchering whales. It kind of reminds me, I don't know if you ever saw the documentary Super Size Me, and uh, McDonald's very proudly said it's like, well, uh, just to show you, we've changed our menu, so we aren't kind of like uh, loading all these calories in. And Morgan Spurlock, who'd done the documentary, said it's like, well, that's what I wanted. That's, you know, they were saying it like a, a thumb in the nose. It, it seems to me crazy that they don't understand that's what you want. Yeah, it's uh, well, uh, that strategy works in many uh, occasions. For instance, in 2008, uh, we wanted to uh, bring the issue of the Canadian seal hunt to the forefront to the public in Europe because uh, they were talking about a bill to ban Canadian seal products in Europe. So how do we publicize this? So I sent our vessel, which the Farley Mowat, which, by the way, we were getting ready to retire. So I sent the Farley Mowat into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, but I didn't take it in that. I managed it from shore, but I had an all-European crew on board, Dutch captain, Swedish first officer. Uh, and I... I dared the Canadian fisheries minister. I said, you don't dare seize my boat. You don't dare attack my boat. And of course he did. Got enormous publicity and uh, helped to uh, pass that that bill. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the the book, uh, The Brer Rabbit and Brer Bear and everything, but, uh, you know, the tar baby. But I called it the tar baby Farley, the Farley Moat, because we sent something in there and we said we don't want this to happen. But in fact, we did want that to happen. And the government played right into our hands on that. Excellent. Um, So just to get back to kind of like those earlier days. So it sounds like from quite early on, you're working with ships and with uh, sailors from all around the world. So you mentioned, uh, I believe, Sweden and um, and Norwegian, but also the the Canadian and British merchant navies. Like, uh, what was it like as a young man to to go onto the seas and to be kind of mixing with all these kind of international people and get involved? Well, I I left home at 15. So at 17, I joined uh, 
the Norwegian Merchant Marine, and then I was also with the Canadian Coast Guard. So uh, when we put Greenpeace together, I, I think I was uh, probably one of the only ones that actually had any sea time experience. And so that, uh, you know, made it easier for me to, you know, to join that crew. And it, it feels like you take all this and you're straight at 15. That That's like not what most people do at 15, join the Navy and and meet up with all these people from around the world. It's it's incredible. Well, it wasn't the Navy. It was a merchant marine, really. <laughs> sorry, sorry, pardon, pardon my... <laughs> yeah. yeah, my first voyage was uh, on the Norwegian uh, bulk carrier Briss. So we crossed the Pacific and and the Indian Ocean and uh, brought cargo to Mozambique and uh and uh, South Africa. So, you know, uh, in fact, I was exposed to apartheid and saw what was going on there when I was 17. Also, the situation in Mozambique and in Zimbabwe. Um, but um, it, it certainly instilled in me a sense of, of adventure and also, uh, you know, a feeling that, you know, if you want to get involved, you can get things done. You just have to be passionate about it and, uh, and, and, and don't be immune to criticism and just do what your, where your heart guides you to go. Yeah, it, it feels like definitely as you're going uh, through all these experiences, I, I don't know if you take it in your stride or if you just take it in quickly, but it seems like you, you go on quite quite quick learning curves anyway. That I what, sorry? That you go through quite quick learning curves with all this. So, you know, you're traveling the world, you're seeing all these different things happening, and uh, it seems like you build on those experiences kind of in quite a kinetic way, but just, just judging by your, your history of the things that you've achieved. I guess so. I never really thought about it that way. Um, you know, I learned a lot. Back in 1973, I was a medic for the American Indian Movement during the occupation of Wounded Knee in South Dakota. And uh, that's where I learned a very valuable lesson because we were surrounded by about 3,000 U.S. Uh, federal agencies who were shooting about 20,000 rounds a night uh, into the village where we were. You know, they wounded 46 people, killed two people. And uh, I went to Russell Means, who was the... Um, the head of the American Indian Movement, the leader of the American Indian Movement there. And I said, Russell, we can't win this. There's only 300 and something of us and 3,000 of them, and they got all the weapons and armored personnel carriers and everything else. So why are we here? And he told me something that stayed with me all my life. He said, well, we're not concerned about the odds against us, and we're not concerned about winning or losing. We're here because it's the right place to be, the right thing to do, and the right time to do it. And he said, don't worry about uh, the future. What you do in the, in the present will define what the future will be. So that's what I've done all along is I don't really give much thought as to where we're going. I deal with the situations in the present and, uh, and the future sort of evolves the way, the way it should. Um, you know, I never thought in 1977 when I set up Sea Shepherd that it would evolve into a global movement, but that's the way it went. And uh, which is, is great because a, a movement's better than an organization. You know, you can stop an individual and you can shut down an organization, but you can't stop a movement. And we're now in 42 different countries. And, uh, you know, there's really no leadership. I mean, I, I'm involved, but I don't call the shots and uh, no single person does. Uh, but uh, we have so many campaigns now as a, as a result of that. Yeah. Uh, so something I wanted to get back to, so like some of the, individual campaigns and some of the things which you've done which uh so you said there about kind of having you know just concentrating what the right thing is to do more than the danger in that moment if that's a kind of okay yeah. way to encapsulate it but like you've stood an iceberg standing down a ship like can you just talk talk us through a moment of doing something like that well i don't really think about it too much in a confrontation situation you're pretty much in the moment uh in fact i find it a very uh 
when you're in that kind of situation, it's very, uh, you're very much aware uh, of what needs to be done. And so almost all the decisions you make are intuitively the right decisions. So you're not, uh, you're not uh, crippled by being afraid or, uh, or doubting what you're, what, what you're doing. And I found that that, that works uh, really quite well. So uh, the decisions just become automatic. Really. I, I just, I, I, do you, do you get surprised by other people not feeling like that or is that just it's your way and that's okay? Well, that's my way. I mean, everybody has different ways, but, uh, you know, I think our most successful captains and officers and directors are the people who, uh, who approach it that way, who uh, go in there fearlessly and uh, are motivated by passion. See, I always say that there's three virtues that can enable somebody change the world. And that is one is passion and two is courage and three is imagination. If you have all those three virtues and also if you're immune to criticism, then uh, you can pretty much do whatever you want uh, or achieve whatever you want. And uh, I always also say that, you know, when people say to me, well, you know, it's pretty difficult. It's pretty impossible. The whole situation is pretty impossible to solve. Well, then that's when you look for the impossible solution to the impossible problem. And impossible solutions can come. Uh, can come. I mean, I always cite 1972. The very idea that Nelson Mandela would be president of South Africa was unthinkable and impossible, and yet it became possible. And there's just so many examples like that. Yeah, uh, and it feels like. I mean, how how do you treat when you're facing down someone who doesn't seem to understand why it's important? Someone who's like just determined to 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 destroy the animal in front of them and do you, do you deal with them with compassion or just kind of like your, your only mission there is to stop them? Yeah, I'm very detached on that. Well, you just uh, you don't get angry and uh, you control your emotions and do what you can to uh, to block, to harass, to intervene. Have you ever had kind of dialogues where you've kind of uh, in the moment even, you know, broke through to someone as a kind of human in that moment, even though you're on the two different sides of it? I don't try to communicate with the people who are doing these things. For the most part, the people we deal with are criminals. Uh, we're not really, uh, you know, I, I, I don't hold up much hope of trying to convince them of every, anything. When people are making a lot of money off of something, you, you're not going to rationally talk them into uh, changing uh, their behavior. Uh, so we don't deal with that. Uh, and we, we, we oppose the operation, not the individuals. Okay. And uh, there was a, another such incident where you were kind of like hoisted up while you were trying to protect some seals and dragged through well, the uh, blood and, and gore left. Well, back in 1977, the problem was is that that, that, was, that happened that year. Up until 1977, I was with Greenpeace, and Greenpeace's approach is bearing witness and protesting. And I always felt protesting was somewhat submissive, but I was sort of had to do what they did because that was uh, the approach. And uh, how do I stop a sealing vessel? So I handcuffed myself to the winch line that was pulling the pelts in. And I thought that I was safe because the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were there. And uh, But no, they just pulled me across the ice into the water up the side and dropped me into the water. And the Mounties just watched. Uh, and then I was taken up, uh, suffering from hypothermia. I was taken up onto the deck and dragged through a, across the blood and the gore on the deck, you know, and kicked and spit on and everything like that. Again, the Mounties did nothing about it. Uh, the problem with protesting is it's sort of like it's very submissive. It's like, please, please, please don't do this. And they do it anyway because they really don't care. Uh, so I felt that that's why I felt there was a need for 
for us to create something that would intervene, not protest, but to intervene, to shut down, to, uh, to harass, to stop, and to block. And, uh, and that's, in fact, uh, what we've been doing. It's been very, very successful. Um, you know, Greenpeace is very critical of us for this because they say that, you know, you've got to bear witness and everything. But to me, that's just a, another way of saying you're a coward. I mean, you don't go down the street and watch a woman being raped and take her picture, and you don't watch a dog being kicked to death and hold up a protest sign, and you don't watch whales die and just hold banners and take pictures. No, you've got to stop it. You've got to intervene. And uh, so that's, I think that's a big difference between our approach and the Greenpeace approach. Certainly. But like, I mean, how do you just um, just hold it together in just that moment? Like, you know, what, what goes through your mind at the moment where you're getting literally winched up and dragged across the ground? Well, nothing really. I mean, you, you, you deal with the situation in the present and yeah. you try to uh, you try to find, uh, you know, you think of ways uh, to deal with the situation that you're in. Uh, but you do it without any fear or apprehension and that. Yeah, and I, and I, I've always felt that the uh, whatever happens, you use it to your advantage. Uh, it's sort of like I used to study Aikido, uh, you know, martial art, where you basically take the forces that are coming against you and make them work in in your favor. And that's what we try to do with Sea Shepherd: is we try to use our opposition against themselves. Yeah, and that that definitely strikes a chord with something you were saying before. You said that it's about being kind of more active than than passive. Yet, it's so important to you, obviously, to keep within. Um, you know, make sure you're not harming other people. Making sure you're trying to work within the law. How do you ride all those like different things? You have to work. You know, for your own survival, self preservation as a movement, you have to operate within the boundaries of the law and also the boundaries of practicality. About 10 years ago, I was invited to give a lecture to the FBI in Quantico, and don't know why they invited me, but they paid me to do it. <laughs> and uh, at the lecture, uh, one of the uh, FBI agents said, well, you know, uh, you know, T-shirt was walking a pretty fine line when it comes to the law. And I said, well, yeah, but does it really matter how fine the line is as long as you don't cross the line? Couldn't really argue with that. And then he said, well, well you know, well, you, some of your people have become eco-terrorists. I said, I don't even, what are you talking about? They said, well, Rod Coronado, you know, he, I said, he breeds some mink from a mink farm. Is that your 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 <laughs> idea of eco-terrorism? And he said, and I said, besides, he did that after he left Sea Shepherd. He wasn't with Sea Shepherd. And they said, well, you trained him. You're responsible. I said, well, I hate to say this, but I got four names for you. Timothy McVeigh, Lee Harvey Oswald, Muhammad Gaddafi, and Osama Bin Laden. You trained them. Don't, so don't give me this line. And what was his response to that? It was actually quite funny. The guy said, well, well they were in the Marines. You know, didn't, he was just trying to save pace, I guess. But the, the thing is, is that we have not been convicted of a felony anywhere. Uh, we've been to court many times, been arrested many times, but it doesn't matter as long as you win the cases and, uh, you know, come out on top. Uh, you just have to be persistent. You have to be as persistent in the court as you are in the uh, in the field. Uh, it's all part of an extension of the same of the same battle, and you can achieve a lot that that way. <clears throat> so you have to be careful, but most importantly, you have to stay within those boundaries. For instance, we don't carry firearms, and uh, for a very good reason, because governments hold a monopoly on violence. Individuals, non-government organizations, they can't. We're not going to get anywhere by using firearms. But what we've done in the last six years is interesting because we do have firearms on board, but they're not in our hands. Uh, we've developed partnerships with various governments in Africa and Latin America, Mexico, uh, 
And uh, we carry their enforcement people. So right now I have two ships off of West Africa, off Gambia and Liberia and places. And we have these partnerships where we take their enforcement people on board. What that means is that we provide the resources, we provide the, um, the volunteers, and they provide the authority to intervene. So we arrested, I think, 52 poachers in the last year. In fact, last week we arrested two Chinese poachers in the waters of uh, Gabon. Uh, we're doing the same with partnerships in Mexico and Peru and Colombia. Uh, we're now in our seventh year of Operation uh, Malagro to protect the endangered Paquita porpoise in the Sea of Cortez. We've confiscated about 1,200 illegal poaching nets. And uh, it, that's a dangerous campaign because uh, the poaching is controlled a lot by the cartels, the same ones that move the drugs. So we've had Molotov cocktails thrown at us. We've had uh, drones shot down. I've equipped the ships with netting to protect them, and the crew all wear Kevlar vests and helmets and that, but we stand our ground to protect the Bikita. And I think that is, I, I'm quite confident that if it wasn't for our presence there, the Bikita porpoise would now be extinct. We stopped the killing and uh, we're keeping them out of the Bikita refuge and it's been working quite well. Our approach is also, you know, we also take legal approach. Right now we have a lawsuit against the United States and New Zealand to protect the Maui dolphin. Uh, and uh, we're proceeding with that. And uh, we've, we've had quite a few uh successes uh, in the courts. And just this week, uh, for instance, with Sea Shepherd France, we were able to get the EU to put pressure on France for the killing of dolphins in the Bay of, Bay of Biscay. And uh, so France was taken a little, uh, you know, had ignored that issue. And we kept pushing it, pushing it, and they ignored it. But now they can't ignore it because the EU has now taken it up as, a, as an issue. And, you know, you mentioned the U.S. there, and uh, it's something I kind of fear about with my own country at the moment with kind of a lot of changes happening with Brexit and everything. When uh, someone like President Trump gets in office and rolls back so many protections for so many animals and the environment, uh, like, how does how do you combat that? Like, does it feel disheartening to, to see so much progress for so many years just being rolled back in a four-term um, presidency? I'm hoping it's temporary, but really... Here's the problem, is that things don't really change no matter what political party is in the United States. You know, the rate of forest deforestation under Clinton Gore was greater than it was under Reagan Bush. Uh, you know, it's just they're just two sides of the same coin. But one advantage of Trump is that he makes it so blatant about what he's doing, uh, where the Democrats just sort of sneak it in under the carpet. So, uh, you know, it's in a way, it's it, I think it's been very enlightening having him as president to just sh to show everybody just how bad the, the situation is. Uh, I don't think he'll win again. I mean, it's always possible, but I don't think he will. But, uh, you know, the fact that uh, the, the progressives within the Democratic Party have been sidelined again, I don't think that, I mean, Joe Biden is for fracking. He's uh, for uh, Wall Street. He's for all the same things, pro-war and everything else. So, uh, you know, are things really going to change that much? I don't know. Um, I, I you know, when uh, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, I, I couldn't come back to the States because she was going to extradite me to Japan at their request. Uh, I had to wait till John Kerry was Secretary of the State before I was allowed to return to the U.S. So uh, po politically, I don't think you get really accomplish anything politically. Governments cause problems. They don't solve problems. Every single uh, major social issue in history has been solved by the passion, the imagination, and the courage of individuals. It wasn't Abraham Lincoln that ended slavery. It was people like Douglas and Wilberforce. It wasn't Woodrow Wilson that gave women the vote in the United States. It was the suffragettes who suffered for it, uh, you know, were imprisoned and were beaten for it. 
government takes credit for it. Wilson gets credit for giving women the vote, but he was their main opposition for 10 years. So um, I don't really think you can really expect governments to solve any of these issues. Uh, it has to be individuals. I mean, look, uh, I think Greta Thunberg has accomplished more on climate change than any of the world leaders have. Yeah, I just, I mean, it's interesting to hear you saying that because it seems like even though I, I do completely take your point, it is individuals who make those differences and force governments sometimes to make the differences. But uh, certainly from what's reported in the news, or maybe that's kind of a bias in there, but uh, it feels like Trump is roll, has rolled back kind of protections which have been in place for, for a long time, which took years to put in place. He's rolled back quicker than previous governments. And I don't mean this is a Democrat or a, um, a Republican issue. Is, is that not as it seems, do you think? Well, they rolled them back, but I mean, if there's a if there's a new administration, they can unroll them, or they may choose to keep it going. Uh, it's hard to really predict what governments uh, are, are are going to do. Uh, but um, you know, here's the difference between, say, for instance, Justin Trudeau in Canada and Donald Trump in the United States, is that Donald Trump says that climate change uh, is not a problem; it's not an issue. Justin Trudeau says it is, but they both do nothing. So they both accomplish the same, only Trump's a little more honest about it <laughs> on that. So other words, you know, uh, Trudeau's doing a lot of posturing, but it's business as usual. He's still he's still representing the interests of the oil companies. There's still the tar sands that are happening. The pipelines are being built. The tankers are still running. So he's done nothing to mitigate that at all. And yet he gets a good he looks good because, well, you got Donald Trump there looking so bad. So it makes him look uh, look good. But, uh, you know, Joe Biden is all for pro-fracking, and he said it right there. He said, well, if you don't like it, you don't have to vote for me. Because, see, the Democrats had this attitude, well, you have to vote for us. It doesn't matter what we do. You have to vote for us because Trump is so bad. And that I don't vote for him. I vote green. Yeah, I just, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, you may be opening my eyes to something here. I do, it just feels like a lot of the moves that Trump, again, certainly what's on the surface seems like uh, – it's like he doesn't care kind of what votes he upsets because he's kind of got a greater idea in his own head of what's happening. At least other politicians are restrained by some sort of like toadiness to get votes, which he isn't. Well, Trump was predicted long ago by Marshall McLuhan, who was a media philosopher. When the news becomes a media, uh, entertainment, entertainment becomes the news. And then, of course, you're going to have actors and entertainers are going to become the politicians. It's like uh, idiocracy, the, the, the film, you know. Yeah. So I, I'm not surprised at all of this. But I mean, when Trump goes on about fake news, he's right in one sense. It's not fake news. It's no news. You don't get any coverage on real environmental issues. 1,200 people have been murdered. 1,200 environmentalists have been murdered over the last 10 years. You don't see it in the newspaper. You know, you don't get anything covered like the pipeline protest or anything like this until it really, you know, it becomes violent. And then they cover it. And then they usually cover it negatively. The mainstream media is a problem, and he's right in, in, in that respect. He's, a, he's definitely right. Not for the right reasons, but it is a problem. Uh, I find the mainstream media to, you know, they, they have a whole uh, a glossary of terms they use for environmentalists, militants, extremists, eco-terrorists. I mean, they just throw these things in out all the time. They don't really like to, you know, try to actually delve into why people are concerned, why people are upset, because the same people who own the mainstream media own the corporations that are, pro are part of the problem. Uh, you know, for, I always look at the province of British Columbia and Canada is a really good example of this. They had a P PR firm called uh, Burston and Marsteller. That PR firm represented 
uh, the government of British Columbia. It represented uh, the television stations and Pacific Press, the newspapers, and it represented the forest and mining industry, the same PR firm representing corporation, government, and media. So you can see how it's all tied in, and they get what they want. So uh, the forest industry does whatever they want, and they're above criticism because uh, the media will not criticize. And the only way that you can get around that is to be flamboyant, that is to do things that, which are outrageous uh, to get their attention. Then they, they can't do it because there's three, there's three elements of media. Uh, there's only three things that any news story is concerned with, sex, scandal, violence, and celebrity. Every story has to have one of those elements. If it doesn't, then it's not really a story. If you have all four elements, you've got yourself a super story. A good example is I led a campaign to stop wolf hunting in British Columbia years ago. And uh, they were shooting wolves from the helicopters, which is violent. They were threatening to shoot us. Again, violent. We've got an environment minister that we exposed for taking a bribe from big game hunters. So we had the scandal. So I recruited Bo Derrick as our spokesperson. And at one of the... at the press conference, uh, a reporter for the Vancouver Sun, he said, come on, what's, what's Bo Derrick know about, about wolves? This is ridiculous. I said, well, that's not the point, is it? You make the rules. We play the game. And the fact is, is that she, if I had Dr. David uh, Meck or Dr. Gordon Haver here, the two foremost wolf biologists in the world, be an empty room. But this place is packed. The cameras are here. It's going to be the front page of your newspaper tomorrow. You're going to write the story. Your editor is going to give a headline. And you know what? There's not a damn thing you can do about it, is there? You can control your story if you can control those four elements. So there's something about using their own tools against them. Yeah, because they can't resist those things. They can't resist, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, that kind of thing. They just simply can't resist it. It's a, that's the kind of, you know, the games that the media the media play. They're not interested in information. We don't have Walter Cronkite anymore. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but, uh, yeah. he, you know, he was the kind of guy that we had in the 60s and 70s who, who read the news, you know, there was no opinion about it. He just read the news. This is what he made, and everybody was left to make their own decisions about what they heard. But now, I mean, it's all bias. Yeah. I mean, here, if you're a right winger, you listen to Fox News. If you're a left winger, you listen to MSNBC. I mean, they say the same things and they're just drilling the same message into people who already have that message. And, you know, so it, it, there's no real, um, there's even the BBC. The BBC used to be, I thought, impartial. And independent, you know, there's no inflections in the voices. That's all changed now. It's all it's all it's all become a world media, uh, and they're all very partisan or oriented. You know, you're either Labour or Conservative, you're Republican or Democrat, and everything. I don't really think we have any media, real media or big media, that is um, is is truly uh, independent. That is uh, neutral. <laughs> you know, yeah. information across. Even then, like with the uh, the the way they do things, I, I completely uh, understand what you're saying about uh, like sub- a subversive way of kind of like uh, using certain terms to paint people in certain lights. But it seems to have gone from subversive to overtive. They seem to be kind of like not even trying to hide what they're doing anymore. Do you think that's more dangerous or is it just, again, more more of the same? Well, I think people are confused and people don't really get the, get the messages. They don't understand the world that they live in. Uh, either believe uh, that climate change is real or they don't. Um, and you can't really convince them uh, to, to, to look at it any other way. Oops. Oh, are we still there? Yep. So great. Yeah. I somehow lost you here. I don't know why. One second. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah, I can hear you, but I can't see you. I just sort of went away for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, 
Sorry, here we go. Uh, it has me re-entering your studio for some reason. I don't know why. Oh, here we are. Still hearing you, seeing you okay? Okay. Can't see you, but I can talk. <laughs> okay. Uh, and it's like just to, to take you back to kind of like uh, the moment when you decided to leave Greenpeace, when it, you know, its ideals stopped meeting your own. Uh, was that a difficult decision after putting all those years in it? Was it something you considered changing from within or was it just felt too far gone for you? Well, it wasn't a difficult decision because there are other elements in play, uh, not just that. The fact is it was becoming increasingly bureaucratic. And uh, I just, you know, suddenly there was some board of directors with lawyers and accountants that were calling the shots. And that was pretty much it in it for me and for a lot of other people. Uh, not many people realize that when I left Greenpeace that a lot of the Greenpeacers came over over the next few years and became crew members on Sea Shepherd vessels. And that including Bob Hunter, who was president of, of Greenpeace, who was a lifelong friend of mine before he died in 2005. But uh, so we, we in a way, Sea Shepherd is the original Greenpeacers. Uh, um, all, there isn't a single Greenpeace co-founder who is with Greenpeace today. Um, they've long since uh, been forced out or they quit or whatever. But uh, I find it amusing today because uh, Greenpeace tries to change their history. Uh, they change it on their website saying, well, Paul Watson's not a co-founder of Greenpeace. He was simply an early member, although it used to be that I was a co-founder. So it's almost like the Bolsheviks are going to take me out of photographs or something. I don't know. But um, then the movie uh, How to Change the World came out, which was about the early days of Greenpeace, which certainly demonstrated that I was a co-founder. And so they've been pretty quiet ever since then. But uh, I, I find it hilarious that people who weren't even born at the time are trying to dictate what the history of Greenpeace uh, was. Yeah, and it seems very interesting that you're trying to still be very pragmatic about it and still trying to work with them, but you've been blocked from that. They've they printed letters kind of denouncing your work, whereas you've said, look, we can save more more animals if we work together. Well, the funny, one of the funniest things, back in 1986, when we, we sank half of the Icelandic whale fleet and, uh, whaling fleet and shut them down for 17 years, and uh, I, had a, a <laughs> I had a Greenpeace, a former Greenpeace colleague approach me and said, I just want to let you know what you did in Iceland is reprehensible and unforgivable, and you're an embarrassment to the movement. I said, well, look, John, I didn't sink those whaling ships for you or Greenpeace. We sank them for the whales. You find me one whale anywhere in the world that disagreed with what we did, and I promise you we won't do it again. But in 1986, I was doing a talk show in uh, Vancouver in Canada when uh, somebody called in a bomb threat to protest my violence, which I thought was somewhat ironic. Uh, and so we had to, ex uh, you know, leave the building and uh, there's journalists down there and somebody put a microphone in my face and said, well, Greenpeace has just called you an eco-terrorist. What's your response? I said, oh, you know, I just wanted to laugh it off, really. I just said, well, what do you expect from the lady, uh, the Avon ladies of the environmental movement anyway? You know, because they're knocking on doors asking for money. Uh, they've never forgiven me for that, <laughs> but yet they call me an eco-terrorist. It's just, it's, it's, uh, again, it, it seems to tie into the kind of theme of like everyone choosing their own news, everyone choosing their own such a uh, small subset. Uh, does that, does that kind of thing make it more difficult to get the cause across, get kind of as many, again, as many animals as possible saved that that's what you're there for, you know? Well, I'm not really interested in, you know, in, the cause in that respect. I'm interested in doing the work I'm doing and, 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 the, and the campaigns that are successful. You know, we shut down this illegal operation. We save this many uh, whales. We save this many sharks. Uh, this is the kind of thing that we're interested in. And how people perceive that uh, is not really uh, much of a concern. I did the Bill Maher show and he said, well, people call you an eco-terrorist. I said, I don't know why. I've never worked with Monsanto. Uh, but, 
you know, so you just get used to these kind of things. Back in the 90s when they called us pirates, they said, okay, well, if you want us to be pirates, we'll be pirates. And we designed our own pirate flag and everything. And uh, again, it's a keto. You make those things work work for you. And, uh, you know, pirates get things done. They cut through the bureaucracy and the red tape. They get, they get things done. But uh, again, you have to be pragmatic. You have to stay within the boundaries of law and the boundaries of practicality and, uh, and do what you need to do. And plus, let's face it, that's quite a bitching logo you've got. <laughs> I know it's about the work, but come on, it doesn't hurt that you've got a, a, a very awesome kind of logo to get behind. Yeah, well, what we have is a skull which represents humanity's uh, destruction of the ocean and the yin and yang of the dolphin and the whale in the forehead, which represents that harmony is to be found in the, in, in the sea within ecology. And the black represents the extinction that we're responsible for. And then the shepherd staff is protection and the trident is aggression. So aggressive protection or aggressive nonviolence is what the logo, the logo stands for. I mean, I joke, but it is, it is a powerful symbol. It is something which uh, I first heard about your work when I was at a vegan fair a, a few years ago in Southampton here in the UK. And uh, just, just to see that symbol, it kind of, it is something which catches, catches the eye very quickly. Well, young people like it, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> As I say, it doesn't hurt that it looks good on a key ring. Well, pirates have always been somewhat romantic, whether people agree with them or not, they've always been somewhat romantic and also been very much understood. If you go back to the 17th century uh, and look at pirates, I mean, they had democratic ships. They had gender and race equality. Uh, you know, we don't we don't think about those things. People say, yeah, well, they're a bunch of thieves. Yes, they stole gold from the Spaniards, who, by the way, stole it from the Indians. So real big deal. Uh, but they also, you know, if you were, you know, Blackbeard used to waylay slaving vessels and free the uh, slaves and uh, give them a cha- choice to go ashore or join my crew. And if they joined his crew, they could rise to the highest level in the crew. I mean, that was unheard of in the 17th century. Uh, and yet, uh, so we forget about those things, those aspects of piracy. We also forget that some of the most illustrious uh, seagoing adventurers were pirates. Sir Walter Raleigh, uh, Sir Francis Drake, John Paul Jones, uh, Roger Sacouf, uh, you know, uh, Jean Lafitte, all of them. <laughs> you know, so they have, a, they have a very romantic legacy in that respect. The sounding feeling I get where everything that you do, everything, every part of Sea Shepherd is, is deeply thought out. But it also has to, in, in to a degree, have a kind of single-mindedness of mission about it. How do you balance those two things without one treading on the other? Well, our mission is very simple. That is to uh, shut down illegal activities. We're an anti-poaching organization and to save as many lives as we possibly can. That's, that is our mission. And at the same time, there's uh, guidelines. And those guidelines are uh, we do it without hurting anybody. And we don't compromise and we don't uh, sell out. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, we're an international movement, but we uh, we don't invest money in fundraising. You don't see our people out on the streets asking for money. We're not sending out direct mail. Our attitude is that if people want to support us, they, they come to us. We're not going to spend people's money going after more money. And that's kept us small relative. I mean, Greenpeace's budget is 360 million euros a year. Ours is 12 million. Uh, after all of these years, but you know, we get we have something that they don't, and that is the passion of our volunteers. We, it's the volunteers that what that's what makes Sea Shepherd what it is. Right now, there's a hundred or so men and women on nine different ships on on these campaigns currently, and if not, that's what makes us what we are. Are, are the passion of these volunteers? You know, the people on the decks, the people in the engine room, the people on the bridge. 
uh, the people on the beaches who are cleaning up trash or protecting turtles. That's what makes us what we are. Okay, to take it back to where you uh, you began with Sea Shepherd, uh, how kind of difficult or how much uh, goes into creating a new kind of a new organization and setting a uh, a set of principles for it? How how, how laborious is that uh, getting that going? I don't really know because Sea Shepherd evolved. I mean, we didn't really give a lot of thought to it growing. Uh, in 2005, I had a crew member. Uh, uh, she, uh, you know, is from France. And then she said, well, I'd like to, you know, organize Sea Shepherd in France. And she went back and she did. And now she's the president of Sea Shepherd France. And they're accomplishing a lot of things. So we try to, to encourage people to, to take the initiative uh, in that respect. And that's worked out quite well. But to give an idea, how do uh, people get involved? Um, 1981, I get a call from a guy in Glasgow, and he said, they're killing gray seals here in the Orkney Islands. What are you going to do about it? I said, I don't know. I'm on the other side of the world. What are you going to do about it? So what can I do? Uh, I said, well, uh, just use your imagination. So what he did was uh, we helped him set up green, I mean, not green, we helped him set up Sea Shepherd. Uh, And uh, he went up to the Orkney Islands, very enthusiastic. He and his uh, volunteers just literally pulled the rifles out of the hands of the sealers, created such a stink, all got arrested, all won the cases. But uh, we so much publicity that we raised the money to buy the island they were killing the seals on, which is today a seal sanctuary. And that was all because of one guy saying, well, what can I do? And so we try to encourage that all the time. In 1979, I had an 18-year-old guy who said, "You know, they're they're the way they're they're torturing chimpanzees and and, and monkeys in, in in laboratories. And what are we going to do about it?" I said, "Well, we're not going to do anything about it because we're a Sea Shepherd Society. But if you're so passionate about it, why don't you do something about it?" And he said, "Well, what can I do?" I said, "Well, use your imagination." So anyway, he went back to Maryland. Uh, got a job in one of the law labs. And for a year, he documented and exposed everything, got it into the Washington Post, shut the thing down, and then founded the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And we've had so many other organizations that have begun because of the the volunteers who came on board our ships and understood that they can make a difference, that they didn't have to, that they had the power to act and that they didn't have to wait for, uh, you know, the right conditions to or the permission to do what they needed to do. Do you have a kind of, uh, where it kind of, it sounds like it grows so organically, but so quickly, is there a difficulty in making sure everyone kind of shares the same vision as you and kind of goes in the same direction with Sea Shepherd? Well, we have had attempts to take it over and uh, we've been on top of that, Uh, but we keep our message uh, consistent. And if there's any move to change that message, then we try to nip that in the bud. but, uh, you know, and we control that basically through the one thing that we do control, which is the copyright on the uh, on the name and the uh, and the uh, logo. Uh, so we control that. But, uh, you know, there, it doesn't mean people don't try to change the agenda, but we just have to be on top of that all the time. But what I find very incredible about Sea Shepherd now is that, uh, for, I, for instance, I'm not the leader of Sea Shepherd now. Alex Cornelison is the is a global CEO of Sea Shepherd. He's based in Amsterdam. And, you know, there's dozens of captains and dozens of directors and uh, they're all, they operate, you know, autonomously and that, and I'm, my position really is just as a, an advisor in a way, I guess, you know, I do a lot of writing and talking these days, but, uh, but uh, it's a movement. And that's to me, the most powerful thing you can build is, is a movement. It's better than an organization. And is the side of it, the, the writing and the talking side of it, something that came naturally to you? Is it just kind of just a progression of the same kind of mission or is that uh, is that something else? Well, I've always been a writer. I mean, during those 70s, I was a, a journalist with the 
the Georgia Strait in in, uh, in Vancouver. In fact, it's funny part about it. I was uh, the environmental reporter on the Georgia Strait. Bob Geldof was the uh, music uh, reporter uh, on that back then. Uh, but um, so I've been, you know, writing all my life. So okay, it's it's something I do. And uh, how about the presenting? Is it kind of something that you're? Uh, is that the best way of kind of like just getting the message out, just to to go out there and speak to the people? Well, the, the, when we were setting up, when Sea Shepherd was was growing. I, you know, we, I didn't get paid. So therefore I had to find a way of making a living. So I began doing lectures at universities and I taught at UCLA. I taught at the art center in Pasadena. So that sort of uh, evolved that separately than from Sea Shepherd's work. And there's so many different kind of campaigns always happening around the world. So many different kind of things to go to. How do, how do you pick what the next mission is, what the next kind of uh, important thing to go towards is? Well, I don't. Uh, that's picked by uh, people in the different countries, about 42 different countries. So, for instance, uh, stopping turtle poachers on the island of Mayotte, that was uh, a decision by Lamia Samlami, a sea shepherd France. Uh, going to the Faroe Islands this summer, that was a decision by Rob Reed in Glasgow. Uh, going to um, our African campaigns, those are overseen by Peter Hammerstad uh, from Sweden. Uh, so these campaigns are initiated by the various directors and captains. And uh, you, and so, you know, I, I also have initiated, like, for instance, Malago campaign. I did initiate it. Uh, I don't need it. Um, so that's how it works, really. And that's why we can have so many campaigns at the same time. It's not coming under the authority of any one person. Was that, uh, again, was that something which was very conscious that, like, the more people you kind of put in positions and the more people, the, the, the wider the net goes, uh, to, to use a fishing metaphor, uh, the more the more it kind of outlives you, basically. It's kind of like it's not just uh, reliant on what you're doing. Loads of people can be doing something around the world. Well, yeah, that's it. Again, that's the nature uh, of a movement. And it also um, guarantees that Sea Shepherd will... Uh, become stronger into the future. Again, it's not dependent upon myself. And what do you do to try and kind of like uh, keep yourself challenged within it? Or is it just so busy that that's not an issue? Well, I'm busy all the time, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, whether I'm writing books or uh, talking or doing interviews or whatever. Uh, so there's, a, there's certainly a lot to do. And also uh, I have a, you know, a three-year-old son, so that's a new adventure on its own. Uh, so... <laughs> I mean, I, it, it does seem amazing that you spend the, the, in the midst of all this, you find the time for a child as well. It must be, uh, and, you know, how, how do you achieve the balancing act of all the different kind of uh, projects and raising a child that you're doing? Well, I don't look at it as a balancing act. You just do what you do. And, uh, you know, it just comes naturally, I guess. Okay. And, uh, like, can you tell us about the kind of the current fleet that Sea Shepherd has and kind of the kind of uh, the levels it's got to? Well, our two largest ships are the Bob Barker and Sam Simon. They're currently on patrol in the waters of uh, West Africa. The uh, We have three former U.S. Coast Guard patrol boats, the Sharpie, the Parley Moat, and the uh, John Paul de Jorius. And the Sharpie and the Parley Moat are doing anti-poaching um, you know, poaching campaigns in the Sea of Cortez to protect the Bikita. Our vessel, the White Holly, is uh, getting prepared to go to uh, Peru and Colombia to you know, to go against overfishing there. Uh, our vessel, the Bridge of Bardo, returned from uh, documenting the Chinese fishing fleet in the waters between Peru and Galapagos and is presently in Mexico and is 
actually undergoing maintenance right now. The uh, the, Martin Sheen, our only sailing boat, is uh, just leaving now for a campaign, a a research campaign with Mexican scientists off of Guadalupe Island in in Mexico. The John Paul de Joria is uh, being prepared for anti-poaching patrols in the Caribbean. Uh, The uh, Emmanuel Bronner is working in the Baltic. Uh, The Hyromor Sandoval is uh, working in Cabo Verde Islands. Steve Irwin, Irwin, we've just retired, but we're also looking at uh, securing two more vessels. So we're, we're actually out there. We're the largest uh, non-governmental Navy uh, in the world right now. And, and I, I think it'll probably grow. I never really gave it any thought to its growing before, but uh, it just seems to be doing that. It's evolving to becoming a stronger and more uh, pervasive, uh, uh, you know, move. Do you ever take any time and kind of uh, look at what you created or is it just always about the next thing? No, mainly, mainly we're, you know, there's always the next campaign. You don't really dwell too much on the past. Uh, uh, They just did a documentary on me called Watson, which did an overview of a lot of the campaigns, not all of them. But I'm hoping that that uh, film, uh, which was made by Leslie Chilcott, who did uh, Inconvenient Truth with with Al Gore, I'm hoping that it'll inspire a lot of young people, especially to understand that they don't have to be concerned about criticism. They just have to go with their passion and... uh, and and just do it and so i'm hoping that'll be the, the impact and uh, when's the film out where can we see it well the film's available now it's been out for you know, for the last year uh we've done a number of films we're doing uh we did sea of shadows protecting the the vaquita in the sea of cortez uh, uh chasing the thunder about our suits the longest pursuit of a poacher in maritime history 110 day pursuit from antarctica decretorial west africa that was made into that movie there's so uh, there's a defend, protect, and defend, and um, preserve. Uh, we, we're, and we're, we're having a movie coming out soon called Sea Spiracy, which is a follow-up to the film Cowspiracy, showing uh, the destruction of the, of the world's fishing industry. So again, you know, it's 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 important to uh, utilize media like film, uh, you know, to reach as many people as possible. And what would you say to someone like just uh, if there was kind of one bit of advice you could say to people who are interested in getting more involved and doing just if there's one thing that we can all do to try and protect uh, sea life, what would you say? Well, you know, it's not just sea life, but the the strength of an ecosystem is in diversity. The strength of any movement has to be in diversity. So people just need to find out what they're passionate about and then use their skills and their abilities to make a difference. So whether it be litigation, education or legislation or direct action or filming or being a lawyer or a teacher, it doesn't really matter. As long as they can utilize those skills to make this a better world. And I think that's what people should focus on, what they do best. And from where we are at the moment and everything that's happening in the world, uh, again, do you keep positive? Well, I always keep positive. I know I've never been one to be pessimistic about it because uh, things will be what they will be. Uh, the one thing I sort of jokingly refer to is that, you know, we either win or we lose. If we lose, we go extinct. Uh, and also if we lose, well, one thing I've learned from uh, mass extinction events over the last, uh, you know, since the beginning of time on this planet uh, is that uh, they all have one thing in common. You know, when the Permian, Permian extinction wiped out 97% of everything, the Jurassic extinction wiped out the dinosaurs. Well, what did they all have in common? Well, after a period of 18 to 20 million years, uh, it all recovered. So if the Anthropocene, that is the, uh, you know, the sixth major extinction event, which would be caused by our cells, if, if that happens, then 18 to 20 million years ago, it'll be a really nice planet again. We just won't be here. But... Uh, 
but you know the planet is going to survive uh, it's never been about saving the planet this whole movement is about saving ourselves from ourselves really and it seems like something which uh, gets back to the kind of kindness of, like it doesn't matter it's not about kind of the future it's about just this moment about this animal which is suffering and doing the right thing well it's about doing what you can in the present and that will uh, that will define the future and uh, it, it seems like another wonderful way in which you're just just so grounded in the moment. Like, is there anything like I, I'm I try to be as, as grounded as, and as present as possible. Have you got any advice to someone like me who tries to be more like that? Well, yeah. And I think, you know, I, I wrote a book uh, earlier this year called How to Deal with um, Stress and Climate Change. And uh, really what you have to do is just accept that uh, you can only do what you can do. And you can't be stressing out about it and everything. What will be, will be. Uh, when people say, well, that's a problem. I said, well, it's always something, isn't it? It's always going to be something. No matter what happens, it's always going to be something new. Just deal with it. Just accept it and, and go with it. Um, you know, life is a wonderful, wonderful gift. Uh, and, you know, we're so fortunate to have it. And therefore, you know, why, why squander it? You do, it, do with it what you, what you can uh, you know, when people say, aren't you afraid of dying? I said, no, nah, nobody who's uh, not afraid of living is afraid of, nobody who's not afraid of dying is afraid of living. Uh, that's, uh, it's how you live is what, what, what's important. Uh, because one thing that we can be absolutely certain about is we're going to die. So does the timing really make any difference? So try to make the most of it. Uh, well, thank you for spending uh, an hour with us. Thank you for, for spending an hour of your time with me. Uh, just before we go, uh, I'm just putting the um, website up for cshepherd.org.uk. Uh, is, is there anywhere else people can go for uh, to read up more? Well, yeah, we have Sea Shepherd sites all over Facebook and the, and the social social media. But where you are is probably Sea Shepherd uh, UK is the best place to check in and of course, because uh, we do get viewers uh, from around the world, please do check out Sea Shepherd uh, for your individual country. Again, thank you very much uh, for your time today. Okay, thank you. thank you. Thank you very much. I've been Dr. Scree, and that was my show. Good night, everyone.